with that, turn to Joshua chapter 8, great chapter uh, this morning. And uh, as you're turning there, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, you're going to need a Bible just to make sure that I'm not making stuff up as I go, because I tend to do that. So uh, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and we'll bring one to you. There are a couple down here in the front and um, you can follow along on a Bible on your phone. I'll be teaching out of the New King James Version if you want to follow along uh, in that version. And if you've been with us, certainly if you were with us last week, you'll remember that last week's chapter was a pretty rough chapter. We watched the children of Israel suffer what we said would be their first and actually their only defeat in the entire conquest of all of the promised land. We saw them driven back by that little heap of a city called Ai. And you know, it was so sad because after all of the miracles and after all of the milestones and after all of these victories that we've seen, the Lord had given to them so far, our text last time said that his anger was burning against them. You remember because one of them, a man named Achan, had taken, he had transgressed the covenant, it said, and he had taken of the accursed things, right? Those things that were from Jericho, which were supposed to have been devoted unto the Lord. But Achan had taken some of those things and he brought sin as a result right into the camp of Israel. And so we saw in our text last time, we saw the consequences, certainly for Achan, of that failure and then the, the confessing of it so that there could finally be a cleansing of the camp after that failure. So the children of Israel now could move forward from failure and we're going to see this morning that they're going to move forward now in victory once again. And so we pick up this morning, we're going to read in, in verse 1 of chapter 8, just the beginning of verse 1, it says, now the Lord said to Joshua. And those are such sweet words to read, and they are much sweeter, I'm sure, for Joshua to hear. Because you remember that chapter 7 had begun with a big but, right? But chapter 8 now here starts out with this wonderful now. And it's so wonderful, of course. It's wonderful the fact that the Lord speaks to us at all. But it's especially wonderful the way that the Lord speaks to us after some kind of a failure that we've experienced in our lives. Those times when we're feeling especially defeated and we're discouraged. And even though the sin has been dealt with, sometimes we're left kind of wondering, you know, is God ever going to talk to me again? Will I ever hear his voice again? Or, or does God just think that it's a waste of time communicating these things to me since I failed so badly in the past. But the fact is that he will and that he does. No matter what mistakes we make, no matter how many times that we make them, by far the worst mistake of all mistakes is for us not to get up and to simply try again with that fresh sense of the presence of the Lord. I think it is so well said, Alexander White said that the victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings, one right after the other. 
So once the sin has been dealt with and that, that fellowship and that intimacy has been restored, God does speak to us just as he speaks here to Joshua. And he's about to give to Joshua some great encouragement. And you can bet that Joshua is so ready at this point to receive it. You know, I know in our own lives, so often after a time of trial or in the midst of a time of severe testing, right, we've got these circumstances or the, these storms that are threatening our lives and everything maybe just seems to be kind of spinning out and the whole world is being, you know, our whole world is being turned upside down. And at those times, the thing that we need the most, the thing that we need the most at that moment is not necessarily for our circumstances to magically be changed. But the thing we need the most is for the Lord to speak his voice into those circumstances, right? So that we would really simply be able to hear his voice above all of the other voices in that conversation. You know, we've got all these different voices that go on in our heads and these different voices that go on in our hearts. And we've got, you know, the things that maybe the doctors are saying or the things that the neighbors are saying. We've got the things that the family is saying. And then we've got all those things that the devil is saying, right? As he's shooting those fiery darts of fear or of anxiety, all the what ifs and the buts, right? And he's shooting those things into our hearts. We've got all these things that are going on. And at that moment, we just desperately need, above all else, to hear God's voice and to hear it clearly right in the midst of all those other voices because that then begins to put all of those other voices into their proper place because God's voice puts everything else into its proper perspective. So just as we start out this morning, we need to praise the Lord for his voice, praise the Lord for the way that he does speak into our lives and he speaks into our hearts, especially after those times of failure and in those times of discouragement. Because notice next what it is that he speaks to Joshua. It says again in verse 1, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid nor be dismayed. He says, take all the people of war with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. Lay an ambush for the city behind it. So, Josh, uh, so God says, okay, Josh, look, don't panic. He says, now that I've got your attention, let's try this one more time. But this time, we're going to try it my way. And before we get to what God's way actually was, I think, again, we need to pause and we need to simply recognize and we need to be awfully thankful that he's giving them a second go at this. Right? Here's this second chance at victory. And I don't know about you, but I am sure thankful in my own life that we serve the God of the second chances and third chances and fourth chances and, you know, you get the idea, right? But here now, now that Achan's sin has been judged and now that the camp has been cleansed, we see that God's favor toward Israel has been restored. And here he reassures Joshua 
that he has not forsaken him. He's not forsaken the people. And he gives them the second chance now to take Ai. And he gives them again this beautiful reassurance that they're going to do it this time around. Because God's grace is big enough and God's grace is deep enough to cover over all of our sin and all of our failure. Please hear me when I say this this morning, that in God's economy, nothing is ever wasted. Even our failures and even our mistakes, even our sin, because he's always using it and he's using it to teach us and he's using it to train us. Henry Ford was once quoted, he defined a mistake as an opportunity to begin again more intelligently. And certainly that's true, but it is never more true than in the economy of God and his grace towards us. Because God is about to give Joshua this chance to begin again more intelligently. And God's going to help Joshua really to organize a victory out of his mistakes. Here are the children of Israel. Now they're smarter, they're wiser. They've learned something from this first defeat. And so God says, all right, now he says we can move forward. And of course, he does the very same thing in our lives. And notice again that the strategy of God would be the guarantee of the success of God, right? It was another victory which was as good as done because this time they were going to do it his way. Notice again, there's that beautiful prophetic past tense where God says, I have given into your hand, right? They haven't even started yet, and this deal is as good as done. And what an encouragement this would have been for Joshua, I think, especially right at this moment. Because I, it's so often it's the case in our lives. Although the city of Ai was a much less formidable obstacle than Jericho, no doubt at this moment, after this great defeat that they had just suffered, I think it probably seemed to be even much more difficult of an obstacle to overcome. Right? That little heap of a city was now a huge mountain of an obstacle. And yet, of course, they were going to overcome it because they were going to look again to God for guidance. And there's a couple of things I think we see here about the strategy of God that are pretty significant and super important for us in our own lives. First of all, notice that God tells Joshua to take everybody. He says, take all the people of war with you. And if you remember the last time they tried to go up against Ai in their overconfidence and in their prayerlessness, remember they only took about 3,000 men because the city and the battle seemed like it was going to be small. But here the Lord tells Joshua he needs to take all of his army, which we're going to see is upwards of 3,500 thousand soldiers so it's over 10 times what they tried to take the first time so God puts this plan together he gives it to Joshua and he says this time I want you to go out in full force guys we don't go up against the enemy especially our enemy the devil we don't go out with just one-tenth of our forces we don't go out with just a tenth of our spiritual resources. We always need to go up against him in full strength. 
right? We love that passage, don't we, in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul wrote extensively to the Ephesians about our spiritual armor, where he says, you know, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, he says, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So there's all of this powerful, protective armor. There's this incredible spiritual strength that he gives us for these spiritual battles. And even before he described it, in the verse prior to that, he said, put on the what? The whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And if we're honest, isn't it true that some days it's almost like we decide, you know what? I don't need that shield today. And that breastplate, it's really kind of heavy. And you know, that belt, talk about uncomfortable. I'm not putting that on today. And so what happens is we head out into battle half naked and fully vulnerable. And so the Lord says, take all your men, take all of their resources into this fight and then notice he says, and then you'll take all of the booty, right? All of the spoils from the fight. Again, notice this time Israel was to get all of the riches, all of the spoils from the city. Jericho, we said last week, it had been the first victory, right? The first fruits of that victory belonged unto the Lord. But now we see, and in all of the rest of their victories in the land, all of the rest of the riches would belong to Israel. And when we understand this, what it makes us realize is just how sad the story of Achan actually is. That he steals that wedge of gold and that beautiful Babylonian garment and all that silver, and that right around the corner, God was going to give him all of that stuff and then some. God had said, look, everything after this is yours, right? After Jericho, everything is yours. Just don't take this. Just obey me here on this one thing. And then after this, he says, the rest of this, you are going to be a people who are wealthy beyond your wildest dreams. And yet our disobedience always robs us of God's blessing. And we say, Achan, couldn't you just have waited like a week? You know, you could have gone into the Babylonian garment industry. You could have opened a store selling gold and, and silver, right? And yet Achan really ripped himself off because he got out ahead of the Lord. He didn't obey the Lord. And it always works the same way in our lives. We need to wait on the Lord. We need to walk in obedience to the Lord and trust that all of that, those spoils are going to be ours in his time and in his way and always according to his plan. Now the plan we see is very different this time than it was last time. Look again at the end of verse 2. The Lord had said to Joshua, lay an ambush for the city behind it. Then in verse 3 it says, so Joshua arose and all the people of war to go up against Ai. 
And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them away by night. And he commanded them, saying, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind the city. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. So Joshua sends this huge force, 30,000 men, up into the hills under the cover of night to go around the back side of the city and hide there in the mountains. Right Then it says in verse 5, Joshua says, Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and it will come about when they come out against us as at the first, that we shall flee before them. For they will come out after us till we have drawn them from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing before us, uh, uh, before us as at first. Therefore, we will flee before them. So Joshua says, I'll take my guys, which we find out is another 5,000 men. He says, we'll approach from the front in the light of day. They'll come out to chase us off, then, verse 7, you shall rise from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand, and it will be when you have taken the city that you shall set the city on fire. According to the commandment of the Lord, you shall do. See, I have commanded you. Now, this sounds like a pretty great plan, but notice again, it's a very different plan then the last plan. Last time we had this marching around the city for six days. We had lots of marching on the seventh day. We had some trumpeting. We had lots of shouting. And then we had the walls miraculously, supernaturally collapsing on themselves. It was awesome, right? And it, we would be tempted to think, okay, well, that worked pretty good. Let's just do the same thing again against AI. But what's an important lesson for us, obviously, is that God doesn't always do the same things in the same way. He doesn't always deliver the victory using the same strategy. And so often, as we're trying to move forward in victory, we're given that second chance at victory. It comes with a brand new strategy for the victory this time around. In fact, Notice that the strategy was almost the opposite of the Jericho strategy. That one used this united force over the course of a week, and it ended with this huge miracle of God. This one was based on kind of a split strategy, right? A divided army with this surprise assault, a very tactical kind of an engagement. One of them was a miraculous event, and the other was this big military maneuver. And the point of all that is that when we're walking in the spirit-filled life, we can't try to box the Lord in, in terms not only of what he wants to do in our lives, but how he wants to do what he wants to do in our lives, right? The spirit-filled life has to be a spirit-led life, where we really are walking in the spirit hour by hour and day by day, and we're constantly asking, Lord, what do you want to do today? What do you want to do here now in this situation and not simply expecting him to repeat whatever it was he did to get us out of the last one? So we really need to make sure as we head into whatever the, the battle ahead of us is, is that we really approach him about each individual obstacle, right? Praying earnestly and waiting patiently for him to speak to us 
clearly because when we do, we find out something interesting is that the Lord always tailors his strategy to us individually and in a very, very personal way. Because notice here we see very surprisingly the Lord gave Israel, the, the strategy that he gave Israel for their victory over AI was based primarily on their previous defeat at AI. Remember, it was their own overconfidence on the part of Israel that had led them to just march up the mountain and try to take this small city in their own ingenuity. And now the Lord was going to have them do precisely the same thing, but this time he was going to take advantage of the overconfidence on the part of AI Right? They were overconfident because they chased these guys away before. That confidence this time was going to be their undoing. But my point is that a key component to this whole plan was built around the fact that Israel had failed so badly the first time. And now the Lord was going to use exactly that failure to, to ensure success on this second go. Right? The Lord knew, Joshua knew, like it says there in verse 5, that they were going to come out against us as at the first. They knew that the enemy was going to do the second time what they had done the first time. As we said before, God is now organizing victory for Joshua based on Joshua's own mistakes the first time out. God is taking their past failure and he is redeeming it. So not only is nothing wasted in the economy of God, even our failures, but he actually uses those failures and he somehow brings about a great success from them. I don't know about you, but I'm so very thankful this morning that not only is our God the God of the second chances, but I don't know what I would do if I didn't have confidence that he's also able to take our greatest failures and to take those and to take all of those and he somehow fits them together under the promise of Romans 8.28 to take even those great failures when we learn from them and as we move forward from them and we can be confident that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who were called according to his purpose. He's going to use these things. And, and look, no one has ever loved us the way that God loves us. And I know we all struggle and we get maybe paralyzed by this sense of discouragement when we failed. We feel terrible because we know that we've sinned against this great love, right? We've sinned against this great light. We should have known better. And so often what happens is that through that discouragement, in comes this condemnation. And all of a sudden, there's no more progress because we are stopped and we are absolutely stymied in our tracks. But there's something that we need to learn here about God, and that is that he wants to move us forward. Right? And he will make the way, and he'll make it even through that discouragement. He'll make a way even through that condemnation. He will make a way for us to do that because he will as only he can, right? He will take those very failures and he'll redeem them and he'll use them to get us where it is he wants to get us and to accomplish what it is he wants to accomplish in our lives. 
Our part is simply to believe in and to trust in and then to walk in his unique ability to bring all of that about. Now, how does he do it? I have no idea. If I did, I would be him, which wouldn't be good for you because I'd be a terrible God, right? It's a mystery, isn't it? But it is a beautiful mystery and we have the promise of it in the scriptures. So the people now have the plan, right? God had given Joshua the basics. Joshua had kind of fleshed out the details. Now it was time in verse 9 to make it happen. It says, Joshua therefore sent them out. So that's that first force of 30,000 soldiers. He sent them out and they went to lie in ambush and stayed between Bethel and Ai on the west side of Ai. But Joshua lodged that night among the people. Then Joshua rose up early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near. And they came before the city and camped on the north side of Ai. Now a valley lay between them and Ai. So this is that second force commanded by Joshua, thousands more men approaching at first light, right in plain sight. They're kind of in this ravine, this deep ravine, which was just to the north of the city. Verse 12, so he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. So this is yet a third force who were sent yet further west, their job was to kind of cut off the possibility of reinforcements coming from Bethel to the aid of the people of Ai. Verse 13, and when they had set the people, all the army that was on the north of the city and its rear guard to the west of the city, Joshua went that night into the midst of the valley. Now, I love these verses because it gives us this beautiful picture of how completely Joshua has covered all of his bases this time around. He's got thousands of forces posted at each of the access points surrounding the city, and they're all converging on the city. Notice it says in verse 11, the people of war who were with him went up and drew near. And I think that there's an important picture here for us because in order for Israel to regain the victory, they had to take the offensive, right? They couldn't just wait for AI to bring the battle to them. They had to bring the fight right to AI. So this new strategy for victory was based entirely on them really pressing in toward victory. And I bring this up because I think that so often as believers, we usually see the battle against sin mainly in defensive terms. And we spend time worrying mainly about all the things that we think that we're not supposed to do. But the truth is that if we're going to move forward right, in claiming more of the promises that the Lord has for us, then we need to start to take the offensive against the powers of darkness and against the powers of temptation in our lives. To really be busy about the things that we know that the Lord would have us to do 
on a daily basis, right? Pressing in against the enemy and completely surrounding around the enemy simply by using the tools that the Lord has already given us, right? Through his word and through prayer and through really cultivating that sense of intimacy with the Lord Jesus, right? Keeping him as close to us as we can. Because, of course, it should go without saying, but as we work to regain the victory in our lives and then to really move ahead and take more ground, we need for our Joshua, right? We need for Jesus to be the one who's leading and guiding and to have him always close to us, especially at those crucial times in our Christian life. Because in these verses, what do we see here? Joshua, it says, was there. He was lodged with the people. He was always right there among the people. He was leading them into this conquest. We all know that there is nothing that can be any more comforting or that can be any more encouraging than to simply know and to sense the presence of Jesus knowing that he's right there beside us in the midst of the battle. And those times when he comes to us, maybe at the darkest hour, and he lifts up our head and he reminds us, I'm right here with you. And he says, and I've already won this victory, and now I'm just going to share it with you. Right. So now with Joshua and with his contingent, now it says that they're camped right out there in front of, of Ai, it says in verse 14, now it happened when the king of Ai saw it that the men of the city hurried and rose early and went out against Israel to battle. He and all his people at an appointed place before the plain. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel made as if they were beaten before them and fled by way of the wilderness. So they ran back, right, further out, back into the desert, drawing the enemy out after them. Verse 16, so all the people who were in Ai were called together to pursue them. And they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. There was not a man left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. So they left the city open and pursued Israel, right? You understand, here's Ai thinking again with the Israelites, really? So this time we're going to show them. Everybody, let's go. And our buddies from Bethel are going to come out and help us, right? Now notice quickly, the Lord had switched up his strategy with Israel but notice the enemy used exactly the same strategy, right? Which reminds us, I think, generally that Satan will always stick with the very same strategy against us until it doesn't seem to work anymore. You know, right, he keeps coming with the same temptation. He keeps coming with the same discouragement, the same fears, the same anxieties until we finally change up the playbook until we through prayer and through increased confidence in the ability of God right all those things are no longer effective against us 
right? So here in this huge tactical blunder brought on by their overconfidence, both Ai and even Bethel are each emptied of every man of fighting age. Then it says in verse 18, the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the spear that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the spear that was in his hand toward the city. And so those in ambush arose quickly out of their place. They ran as soon as he had stretched out his hand, and they entered the city and took it, and hurried to set the city on fire. And when the men of Ai looked behind them, they saw, and behold, the smoke of the city ascended to heaven. Whoops! Right, that didn't quite go the way that they had planned it, right? It says, so they had no power to flee this way or that way, and the people who had fled to the wilderness turned back on the pursuers. So the men of Ai, and presumably the men of Bethel, are now trapped right out there in the open. Joshua then turns his force and starts to go back and attack them. Those in ambush now are coming out toward them at Joshua's signal, which we see was given to him by the Lord. It was to raise his spear toward the city. And we're going to see that he had to hold it there as the battle continued and until the battle was completely won. And of course, it reminds us, doesn't it, of Exodus chapter 17, right? At Rephidim, when Joshua himself had bravely fought many years before against King Amalek and his huge armies. And we have Moses up there on the mountain holding up his staff to the Lord, who then enabled the army of Israel to finally prevail. In both cases, it was an acknowledgement that the battle belongs to the Lord. And the battle is only won as we acknowledge him all throughout the midst of the battle. And I don't know about you, you know, sometimes we can go into battle with this plan given to us by the Lord. We even have the presence of the Lord accompanying us in, but in the heat of the fight, we forget to continue to acknowledge the Lord and we fall back on our own fleshly strategies. We start to rely again on our own fleshly strength to finish off the fight when we need to just stay strong, stay focused, stay dependent on the Lord, not only at the beginning, but also in the midst of the fight, because then we're guaranteed that all is going to go according to plan. Verse 21, now when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that the smoke of the city ascended, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. Then the others came out of the city against them, so they were caught in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side, and they struck them down so that they let none of them remain or escape. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him to Joshua. So the king now is the lone survivor of this conquest of the city. And it came to pass, verse 24, when Israel had made an end of slaying all the inhabitants of Ai in the field, in the wilderness where they pursued them, and when they all had fallen by the edge of the sword until they were consumed, that all the Israelites returned to Ai 
and struck it with the edge of the sword. So it was all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back his hand with, uh, with which he out, pardon me, stretched out the spear until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as booty for themselves, according to the word of the Lord, which he had commanded Joshua. Verse 28, so Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever, a desolation to this day. So Ai, which we saw last time, the name literally meant heap. So now that heap just became a burned up heap. All of the people killed, all of the cattle taken, all of the spoils plundered as the Lord brought this righteous judgment upon the wickedness of these pagan peoples, upon their idolatry and their brutality and their immorality. Keep in mind, we've said it before, this was not the slaughter of innocent people. This was the judgment of a righteous God on an evil, wicked society that had long, for over 400 years, been resisting his grace and his truth. Verse 29, and the king of Ai, he hanged on a tree until evening. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take his corpse down from the tree, cast it at the entrance of the gate of the city, and raise over it a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Day. So this was the final symbolic act of this complete, total victory on the part of the children of Israel, right? They had persevered until there was complete victory. This wicked king had no army, no subjects, he had no city. The Lord had destroyed them all, and now he too would be destroyed. Now, Probably the king was killed by Joshua using a sword, after which we have this whole business about them hanging the corpse from a tree. Basically, it was a sign. It was a deterrent. It communicated to all of the neighboring peoples, don't do what this guy did or you'll end up like this guy ended up. Again, total, complete victory this time around. And just quickly, whatever it is you're battling, Make sure you kill it all off this time so it doesn't regroup and come for you again. Get rid of that hidden bottle. Right? Delete those bookmarks. Get rid of his phone number. Wipe out that app. Right? Let go of that bitterness. Give over all of that anger. Just hang it all up before the Lord. Because if you don't, that king is going to be coming for you again. And this time, he'll be regrouped, and he'll be stronger the next time around. What's interesting, I think, to consider, so far, what we've seen for the children of Israel, just in these first two cities that they've conquered, since they crossed over into the Promised Land, that conquest at Jericho followed very closely by the first attempt, and now finally this victory at Ai, is that their experience so far, just here in the Promised Land, it's an illustration of their entire history as a people and also an illustration of our lives, so many of us as Christians, right? You've got this obedience followed by victory, victory followed by blessing, blessing followed by pride, 
and disobedience. Disobedience followed by defeat. Defeat followed by judgment. Judgment followed by repentance. Repentance followed by obedience again. And then obedience followed by victory. We're right back to where we started. And yet, sadly, what happens? The cycle just continues. Unless we can break free from that repeated pattern. And that's precisely what we see in the, the rest of our text today. What we see is that Joshua is about to do something very strategic and yet somewhat confusing to help ensure that both he and his people can stay on this path to victory. Right, because as they're moving forward in victory, they've been given this second chance at victory. They, they have this new strategy for victory. We've watched them pressing in toward the victory. We've seen them now persevere until the victory was complete. Now Joshua is going to ensure that they plan for continuing victory. Look at verse 30. It says, Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. So here they are, after a, a, this amazing victory at Ai, all of a sudden Joshua does this sort of a strange thing, at least strange from a, a strategic or from a military perspective, because instead of just keeping that momentum going, right, and finally finishing out that whole central campaign, right, locking down that, that part of the country, he suddenly stops and he leads the Israelites on this kind of a spiritual pilgrimage so that they can offer sacrifices to the Lord. And we say, okay, well, that in and of itself sounds pretty great. And yet, it's even more great than you think it sounded great. Because keep in mind, Mount Ebal, where he led them, is a full 30 miles north of where they were currently encamped there at Gegal. It was way up by the city of Shechem. It was at least a full day's march for this more than two million people right straight up the Jordan River Valley. And why in the world did he do it? And why in the world did he do it there? Again, it said there simply because the Lord, through the law of Moses, had commanded it to be done in that way and in that place. So what we see here is that Joshua is a man of the book. He's a man, he's obeying that command. Remember that the Lord had given him in the very first chapter where he said that this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate in it day and night. You shall observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. So we see Joshua as a man of the book. We also now are seeing Israel as a people of the book. Here they're following their leader, they're ordering their lives after the word of God. Even though the timing may have been bad, even though the journey may have been long, because this was an act of total consecration unto the Lord. Because here's what Moses had said back in Deuteronomy chapter 27. 
He said, when you have crossed the Jordan into the land the Lord your God is giving you, he says you're to go up to Mount Ebal, and then in verse uh, 5 of chapter 27, he says, there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not use an iron tool on them. Remember, the beauty of the offering wasn't supposed to be the altar. It was supposed to be the sacrifice upon it. He says, you shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. You shall offer peace offerings and shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. Now, as you may know, the burnt offering is a consecration offering. And the unique thing about that offering is that the entire sacrifice was burnt. Right? All of the meat was consumed by fire on the altar. And when a person offered a burnt offering, it was a completely voluntary offering. It was a way of a person simply coming and saying, God, you have my whole life. My whole life belongs to you, and it's consecrated unto you for you to use it however you see fit. And it's a picture of what Paul would later write to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, where he said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that we what? Present our bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. So that's our burnt offering. It's to regularly be saying, Lord, my whole life belongs to you. And I want my life to be set apart and to be holy unto you. You are free to use my life however you see fit. So that's what the burnt offering communicated. It was a time where all Israel was stopping and they were saying, Lord, we belong to you. We exist just to bring you glory, right? Or to accomplish your purposes in this world. Now, the peace offering... The unique characteristic of that offering was that an offering of meat would be made unto the Lord and then the priest would then give a portion of that meat back to the person who was offering it, right? Really good barbecue, right? So here, here's part of this roasted meat back to you. So what you have is this beautiful picture of God eating, so to speak, his portion of the meat, but then the offerer eating his portion of the meal and so it's like God and the offerer are enjoying this communion this fellowship with one another right they're partaking from the same sacrifice because they're at peace with one another it's called the peace offering or in some translations you'll see it called the fellowship offering so here in these offerings it's this communication on the part of Israel of their consecration Right, this wholehearted commitment to the Lord, but also of their deep appreciation for the fact that God had made a way for them to be in relationship with him. And then there was one more interesting thing that Moses had commanded should be part of this pilgrimage. Again, in Deuteronomy 27, it shall be when you've crossed the Jordan to the land which your God is giving you that you shall set up for yourselves large stones and whitewash them with lime. 
You shall write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over, that you may enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord God of your fathers promised you. Therefore it shall be, when you have crossed over the Jordan, that on Mount Ebal you shall set up these stones, which I command you today. Now what in the world is that all about? Well, quickly it's this. Remember, God had given the law of Moses at Mount Sinai. We saw Moses had repeated and then explained the law when they were right on the plains of Moab, just across the Jordan River, right in, in Deuteronomy chapter 11. And then here now, Joshua is reaffirming the law right now here in the land of promise. And so we read in the rest of our text in verse 32, it says that there in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. So probably the entire book of Deuteronomy. It says in verse 33, Then all Israel, with their elders and officers and judges, stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, uh, the Levites who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as he who was born among them, half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Abal, as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel. I know I said it was the rest of our text, but let me pause real quick. So just picture this scene, right? It may sound a little bit familiar because Joshua is simply recreating this scene, which we've seen before, we've read before, in the rest of Deuteronomy 27, just the way that Moses said that they should do. So you've got now more than a million people each standing in front of these two mountains, Right, you've got Mount Ebal, this rugged, kind of barren, rocky mountain. Opposite it, you have Mount Gerizim, this wooded, sort of a beautiful mountain face. And so you've got the people standing in front of there, divided by their tribes, about 500 yards apart. So what's that? Five football fields, right? Five football fields apart. And then in the valley between that are standing the priests and the Levites with the ark, and you've got all of the officers and the judges of the nation. So you've got all the people of Israel standing facing the ark, which of course we've said represents the very presence of the Lord among his people, right? So it's in this scene now, in this place here. Oh, that picture actually looks better than I thought it might, right? Okay, so in this, it says afterward, verse 34, we're really at the end, Afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. You thought this service was long, right? With the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. Now, if you remember out of Deuteronomy 27, the full instruction from Moses, right, is that as Joshua and the Levites were to read the blessings of the Lord one by one, that all of the tribes there on Mount Gerizim were to respond with a loud amen to each one of the blessings. And then as they went through and read the curses from the law, all of the tribes there on Mount Ebal, right, 
they would respond with their own amen after each curse. So the whole picture we have, not only this commitment of these beautiful offerings and sacrifices to the Lord, but then as they're hearing the word of God read aloud to them, and the people are now publicly proclaiming their commitment to obey what he commands now that they're here in the land. And in fact, when they're right here in the center of the land, because purely by coincidence, I'm sure, the Valley of Shechem is located exactly in the geographic center of the boundaries of the land that God was giving them. And from either peak of either one of these mountains, you could look in either direction and see the entirety of the promised land. And it's a picture that the word of God was to be at the center of the lives of the people of God now that they were here in the holy land of God. And just a quick note, I'm sure that some of you Bible students have already noticed that the altar of sacrifice, did you notice it was purposely placed there at the base of Mount Ebal, right? It was placed there on this rough, rocky mountain of cursing. It's a picture of the reality that we need the perfect covering of the sacrifice to be exactly at the point where our sin and failures are revealed to us by the word of God. Now, I think what's really interesting about the timing of this whole thing, right? The point of this whole activity here, we've got the sacrifices, we've got the law being read, is that by the time the children of Israel are doing this, here in chapter 8 of the book of Joshua, they have now experienced both great victory in the land, right there at Jericho, but they've also experienced some great defeat in trying to take little AI that first time around. So now they really have some understanding and they have some knowledge that has come from their own painful personal experience. And it's like God says, all right, now you've gotten a little taste of the wonderful victory that your obedience can bring, but you've also gotten a little taste of the kind of crushing defeat that your disobedience can bring. So now that you've done that, let's review my expectations for you one more time. And let's really review what the pathway is to blessing. And so we, can, we say, okay, Lord, I know what defeat tastes like in my life, and I do not want to live there anymore. And so, Lord, I want to commit to you now more than ever to, to do my best with your enabling to walk in the power of your word and to obey it. Isn't it so true that defeat very often doubles our determination. Okay, we really are closing. Well, this is the second close. I think that there's a super cool reminder here. It's kind of an unexpected picture. Again, as we're moving forward, claiming this ground, you know, walking in this fullness of what the Lord's provided to us, I think it's kind of ironic that here in the book of Joshua, which is teaching us how to walk victoriously in the spirit-filled life, that there was to be this big monument, right? These, these large stones covered with plaster. 
And on that was to be written the law of Moses in its entirety. Prominently placed there right in the center of the land. And what I think that this is supposed to instruct us is that the key to living in and to walking in the spirit successfully, the key is that we heed the word of God seriously. And that we keep the word of God centrally and really prominently positioned there in our lives. Now, luckily for you, we are super out of time. So we're not going to go. That's a whole nother day, right? We could talk a day about that. But this morning, we are going to finish up with communion. And communion, of course, is our expression of our appreciation for the sacrifice of Jesus. And just as we see pictured in those offerings that they were celebrating there at Mount Ebal, it's that sacrifice of Jesus that has provided us with the possibility of this even greater peace and this even more intimate fellowship with God than the children of Israel ever knew was possible. So the kids are kind of going to come back up now and they're going to lead us uh, in worship and as they do the elements are up here on the tables um, our communion here at Calvary Chapel Mountain View is what's called an open communion it's open to anyone the only requirement for you to take uh, partake of communion today is that you're a born-again believer in Jesus communion is for those who are born again because it's celebrating that work that God has done in our lives if you're not yet born again, we can take care of that and you can celebrate communion with us. So Pastor Jeff is up here on this side and his wife Anne is over here on that side. Um, if you're interested in, uh, in starting out a relationship with Jesus, either of them can help you and can explain to you how to do that and what the next steps are for that. And then you can partake of communion with us. And for everyone else, let's just really take this as an opportunity, again, just to reflect on all that the Lord has already done for us, those things that he still wants for us, uh, and just to really take some time and to, uh, to celebrate that today. Amen? Father, we thank you so much for this morning, Lord, and we thank you for this intimate fellowship that we enjoy with you. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice of your precious son, Jesus, that made it possible. Lord, that we could be, that our sin could be forgiven. Lord, that it could be moved out of the way and clear a path for us to be there in your presence. And so we pray, Lord, as we take the, the bread and we take the cup, that you would make those truths real to our hearts this morning. Lord, may it never become a common thing. Lord, we pray you'd uh, speak to us even now. And we pray that you'd do it in Jesus' name. Amen.